you've had a busy week in the market, not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9Fin, our suite of podcasts where we bring you the need-to-know information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield, leveraged loans, and restructuring spaces. We also have our US podcast, which features discussions with members of the North American Levfin market with US editor Will Cager Smith. So be sure to check in every second Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today when we'll be discussing how the asset sale covenant can expand our P capacity. We'll be looking at Novalex and Prees' recent ESG linked loans and taking a deep dive into Sure Flexibles. But first, the Levfin wrap. That's right, after a spate of new issuance last week with Cooper and Clinogen pricing earlier this week, we're back to crickets. Our team was waiting with bated breath for a tidal wave of loans and bonds delayed by the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the associated volatility, but this Tuesday, it never came. Many thought the market would find its feet after Easter, with one market participant suggesting we have almost 25 billion euros in backed-up syndications. But for now, we're keeping our eyes on the big deals likely to make up a chunk of that figure, such as Morrison's, which had its rating put out earlier this month, as well as Unilever Tea and Boots. Next up, we have the Covenant close-up, when Alice will be looking at the different ways that the Asset Sale Covenant can build restricted payments capacity. Thanks very much for being with us today, Alice. Lovely to be back. So, Alice, maybe you could give us a little bit of context on the Asset Sales Covenant. To recap, the purpose of the Asset Sales Covenant is to preserve the asset base of the restricted group by requiring asset disposals to meet certain conditions. So, you know, around the amount and the type of consideration and there being fair market value, etc. And the proceeds of those disposals are to either be reinvested in the restricted group or used to repay debt. But the provisions have been diluted over the years such that there are increasing opportunities for issuers or borrowers to leak value by selling assets and then distributing the proceeds to shareholders. And as it stands, it is common to allow asset sale proceeds to be used for RP and PI capacity if there is RP and PI capacity to begin with. So the proceeds don't need to be reinvested or used to repay debt. And the rationale for this carve-out is that the issuer would have been allowed to distribute out the asset as an RP using its RP capacity anyway. So it provides some additional structuring flexibility, but it doesn't actually increase the value leakage potential. But it's one thing already having the capacity and it's another thing to actually build RP capacity from the asset sale proceeds. So I'll go through some of the ways in which the asset sale covenant can do this and essentially you know, what to look out for in the documents. And one of the ways is through permitted specified asset dispositions. And this defined term has cropped up in about 4.5% of the deals in 2021. So it's still relatively small. Um, And I do believe that Caitlin spoke about this concept back in August. So I'll I'll keep it brief. Um, But the name specified asset disposition is a bit of a misnomer as it isn't actually linked to a disposition of a specified asset, but rather any assets that the company has acquired after the closing date, 
although we have sometimes seen it apply to any asset, regardless of whether it was acquired before or after the closing date. Um, and you have to remember that this, this test reflects the EBITDA contribution of the d- disposed assets, not the amount of proceeds. Um, and the proceeds of the specified asset disposition are excluded from the scope of the asset sales covenant and instead build RP capacity under a designated RP basket where it's typically capped at about 25% of EBITDA and its usage is normally subject to a leverage test. And another way to build RP capacity is through leverage-based step-downs and declined excess proceeds. So leverage-based step-downs means that if certain leverage tests are met, only a certain percentage of asset sale proceeds, typically 50% or 0%, will be subject to the bondholder offer requirement or more aggressively subject to application of proceeds provision, which is sometimes referred to as the waterfall. And the remaining proceeds not required to be applied under the waterfall or the excess proceeds requirement may then be used for other purposes and in some deals, these amounts even build RP capacity. And the other one, declined excess proceeds or just declined proceeds, is a typical term that is included in the RP covenant. And it's not unusual to see it attached to the RP builder basket as just another builder component. And essentially, any asset sale proceeds that are required to be offered to bondholders, but are then declined, can build RP capacity. And this is sort of fair enough because the bondholders were at least offered the proceeds in the first place. Um, however, you do have to be careful because this term might not actually mean that the proceeds have been offered to the bondholders and then declined. So in McAfee, which was issued in February 2022, the declined proceeds are defined as being amounts below excess the excess proceeds threshold and excess proceeds are determined on a per transaction basis. So essentially, the first 25% of EBITDA proceeds per transaction appear to build um, RP capacity. And just to wrap up, these are just some of the avenues in which the issuer can apply disposal proceeds in ways that leak value away from the restricted group and build RP capacity. So these structures allow the issuer to bypass the traditional uh, requirements that are that were designed to preserve the value of the group. And we have seen some pushback in Douglas last year. The leverage-based step-downs for excess proceeds were tightened and they were in fact removed altogether in multicolour. So, you know, there has been some success, some silver linings. Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly with the lovely Alex Manolopoulos. Hi, Kat. Thanks for having me. So you're um, one of our loans-focused credit analysts, but you also look a little bit at ESG. So um, today we're going to be talking a little bit about a Preza ESG-linked loan because, uh, as we all know, we've seen a big primary pause um, and there hasn't been too much going on in the ESG-linked world, but we have had this loan out. So, yeah. As we touched on CAT, sustainability linked issuance has obviously been uh, quite quiet, um, as with the rest of high yield and uh, leverage loans. But uh, late last month, we had a precess refinancing, uh, which came with a uh, rather novel or a 
market-breaking uh, sustainability-linked uh, term in the sense that we had a three basis point ratchet uh, attached, to the re attached to the refinancing, which is one of, if not the lowest uh, total ratchets that we've seen. And then um, uh, on top of this ratchet, uh, the financing was linked to uh, two KPIs. Uh, the first was to create and distribute content linked to sustainable development and the second to increase advertising contribution to social and cultural organizations. Now, uh, PRISA, obviously, they are a Spanish media group, so we appreciate um, some, uh, some of the more traditional uh, KPIs, such as maybe uh, emissions reduction, uh, either in uh, emissions intensity or in absolute emissions, might be a little bit less feasible here, but potentially uh, there are some other social governmental uh, KPIs which could have been considered rather than these KPIs centered around the distribution of content which come across as a little uh, a little flimsy versus uh, some of the other KPIs that we've seen from uh, issuers that might be uh, issuers and sponsors that may be a little bit more uh, conscious around how they're structuring uh, these uh, sustainability linked instruments. Mm. Yeah, I, we, I was looking at Cooper the other day actually, that buildings materials issuer um, that was been in the market recently with Brookfield Management as the sponsor. And I did have one buy sider call their 7.5 bips across three margin ratchets, pathetic. So perhaps it's a little bit of a theme. Sure. I mean, uh, 7.5 bips is around. Uh around market norm. I mean, we're seeing it push a little bit more towards 10 bits and the most aggressive or the uh, or the uh, most ambitious, shall we say, uh, uh, issuers in the sustainability link leverage loan space push for the 15 basis point ratchet. Um, but this often gets, again, uh, downgraded to 10 if uh, the terms uh, aren't uh, aren't in line or, uh, or if they can't justify these with uh, strong KPIs. You also mentioned something in our prep about carbon credit quality. I assume that's also deteriorating. Sure. So we've seen uh, the uh, whole carbon credit question pop, pop back into the news a little bit over the uh, past couple of weeks. Um, specifically, uh, we had uh, Transalter, a uh, high yield name on the uh, North American side, uh, being called out by the FT for uh, purchasing carbon credits created from oil extraction operations. So this would be when CO2 is pumped into the ground uh, as part of fracking to extract uh, oil and gas. Um, and then the and then obviously uh, the oil and gas firm can sell credits off the back of the CO two that they're pumping into the ground. So obviously, the quality of that credit is uh, uh, far lower than, for example, a credit that is generated off of the uh, planting of trees, for example. So uh, no, it's important to remember that no carbon credit is created equal, and it's just another factor that uh, ESG-minded uh, buy siders will have to look out for um, when they're looking, you know, at, uh, for example. Um, whether a company is truly net zero, um, and then how you might want to look at uh, the uh, the true value of the carbon credits that um, uh, uh, that an issuer might be using. It's also obviously another um, big point of contention in autos. So obviously on one side you have Tesla, who generated six hundred seventy nine million dollars um, in uh, of uh, Q four revenue um, from uh, selling regulatory credits that they received, and then on the other side you have uh, Stellantis, for example, who are a significant buyer who uh, spent uh, up to 455 million euros for vehicle shipments in the period prior to uh, the recent merger with PSA Group. Um, so there, you know, there you have obviously, uh, you know, your uh, EV manufacturer and then your uh, more traditional automaker um, on, the, uh, the, on the two sides of the carbon credit question. 
Next up, we have our deep discussion where we discuss one topic a little bit more deeply. Today, we're going to have an update on Sure Flexibles. I'm here with editor Chris Haffenden, our resident restructuring expert. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me today, Chris. That's a pleasure, Kat, as always. Wonderful. So we've had a fairly straight-laced update from Sure Flexibles. What were the headline news that came from this update? Um, well, I think this is what we were expecting probably a couple of weeks ago. Everyone was hoping the company was going to come back with some sort of update in terms of what they wanted in terms of the restructuring proposal, what they needed in terms of new money and how they were doing in, with their discussions with the stakeholders. I suppose we should just go back for the uninitiated in terms of what actually happened with Sure. So Sure Flexibles is a flexible packaging company. It's the fourth largest in Europe. It's based in Austria and was subject to an LBO last September where it was bought by B and C partners uh, from Lindsay Goldberg, with Lindsay Goldberg retaining a 20% stake. And there was massive shock for lenders in February when they announced that there had been accounting regularities and that uh, 2020 and 2021 EBITDA would have to be massively restated downwards with uh, talk about uh, potential uh, impropriety from the uh, the previous management team. Just going from a normal syndication and then what, six, six seven months later? Yeah, so the, the loans dived into the, into the sort of mid-70s and then stepped down again into the mid-60s and there was an update for lenders just giving them a bit more of a sort of first initial look of what the uh, the issues were at the end of February and they said that they would come back to them again at the beginning of April with a, a more fully-fledged update in terms of the numbers but also the, the plan that the company would have as well. So Tuesday saw the release of the company's financing and restructuring plan and an update call occurred Wednesday afternoon. Now, as I understand it, the shareholders are stepping away. Is that correct? Uh, they are, which is a bit of a surprise because they were providing sort of back-to-back guarantees for about 85 million of, um, of financing uh, that was becoming due. And they were trying to sort of stand still that throughout the sort of process of negotiation. Uh, it appears that the chief restructuring officer, which has been in, in several conversations with both shareholders, either separately or together, and that the shareholders came back uh, late on the 13th of April uh, and said, you know, we're not willing to, uh, to provide the new money that's needed and that uh, they prefer the lender-led solution. So that's the, that's the issue now, is effectively the company's sent to the proposal where there's a new money need and also they're looking to have a debt restructuring where they're not actually reducing the amount of debt, but they are splitting that into an opco whole co-structure and the opco debt is effectively what they can bear in terms of interest-bearing debt and the whole co-debt is very much deeply subordinated, unsecured and uh, can be seen very much as, if not hope notes, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's sort of um, deeply subordinated debt and there is a, a fair amount of doubt about whether they'll actually get repaid uh, upon maturity. Do you think that this is a bad sign for the company that the the sponsors are keen to kind of walk away. We can understand why the sponsors are going to be struggling here just because of the sort of sharp reduction in EBITDA and just looking at the fact that you know all of their equity that they put in has gone and it's clear that the value is already breaking in the uh, in the term loan. So you can understand you know why they potentially wouldn't be uh, you know be interested in the business. However, they could have maybe structured the 
um, new money into the business as you know as a as a, a super senior piece, and which might have allowed them to sort of regain control. And that sort of super senior piece was effectively them restating their equity. But um, we haven't really had any anything from the, the the shareholders really telling us what's what's actually happening from that point. Right. Okay. So we've got this new proposal. What what are the headline terms? Yeah. So the idea is that they need to find about sixty million of int- interim financing. Um, they said that the company's current liquidity will run out at the beginning of June, which also is the same timing as where the supply of credit financing has been standstill too. So they want that sixty million. Uh, they want that to be replaced by a 75 million facility at closing of the restructuring, which they're hoping to close in the autumn and there's a long stop date in December. Uh, that money will come in as super senior. Uh, there is some additional sort of guarantees that will be put in place with the Greek operations as well. So that plugs some of the new money need. Then what they're looking to do is they're looking to split the current debt into the OPCO term loans and into the sort of Holco picks. So 36 cents out of the 100 cents will go into the OPCO and the remaining 64% will go into the uh, the Holco debt. Uh, and the, the Holco debt is virtually all pick. There's a very tiny sort of cash component to give lenders a potential trigger on non-payment. And uh, there is a sort of bump up in the, uh, the sort of cash pay element of the OPCO pick, OPCO debt but that's also split between part cash and part pick as well so the view is at the end of by the end of 2025 there should be around about 30 millions worth of free cash flow to um, to service the debt and that's what they've really structured the deal around from your vast experience in this field it does the proposal look should i say normal or industry standard is there anything crazy that you'd like to highlight i suppose I can see the, the, the benefits of splitting the debt into OPCO and HOCO and they are you know, handing over the keys to the, the lenders so effectively there's potential equity upside there. I think where they're probably pandering a little bit to the par lenders who are very keen to make sure there's no sort of debt haircut is actually the, the, sort of the HOCO pick element, the fact they're not actually reducing the debt component. You would normally think you would reduce it by some amount. So I think it's going to be quite difficult to get to that equity value unless you actually get to the point of a second restructuring and write off the whole code pick. And there's also the question marks, which I think lenders will be very much asking KPMG, who developed this plan, is how much of you know is is the of the turnaround of the business is actually you know can you actually believe that 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 is achievable? So you've gone from a business that was marketed on 116 million of EBITDA. Uh, when it was up for sale, it was around about 90 millions worth of re- reported EBITDA, and now you've actually got a business that generated 39 million last year, and you're looking for a bump up into sort of 80, 85 million by 2025, which gets you to that point of where the OPCO debt will be around about four times levered, which allows you to refinance that, but you still have the whole co- the whole co debt's going to be very, very you know, high single figures, which is suggests that you're not got, you haven't really got a lot of equity value at the back end. Right. So you're not feeling too confident in this? No, I, th- I think on this one, the equity is very much more for control rather than um, you know, to provide any upside mm. at this current point. That said, if you're buying into the, the debt in the secondary market, it was trading at 65 before this announcement was put together. It's now in the sort of mid to high 50s. Then you might think if I'm buying that debt in the secondary market, you can run your numbers and that might actually give you a slightly different outcome. And that's something that we need to, uh, to do our work here on at Ninepin as well. 
I'm afraid that's all we have time for today on Cloud9Fin. Many thanks to Alice, to Alex and Chris, and of course, to you too, listener. Tune in for the US edition next week and the European pod the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.